Donald Trump and ISIS. For American Muslims, it's the perfect storm. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. For Donald Trump, Islam has been the ideal campaign bogeyman. Our visceral fear of Muslims is deep-seated. After all, Obama wasn't the first president to be accused of being a closet Muslim. Thomas Jefferson holds that honor. And Muslims have long been the go-to bad guys on TV and in the movies. But the rise of the brutal and media-savvy Islamic State and a candidate happy to exploit fear brought it all to a head. Caught in the middle, America's three and a half million Muslims, struggling to confront twin realities. Anti-Muslim rhetoric and violence is at record levels. Meanwhile, some American Muslims are carrying out acts of terror. American Muslims in the age of Trump, this week on American Fault Lines. America and the world are more divided than at any time in recent history. Red and blue, rich and poor, terrorist and peacemaker. For more than four decades, Lawrence Pintak reported from the world's fault lines for CBS News, Time, AP, and many others. From Armenia to Zimbabwe, the White House to the House of Saud, covering wars, coups, and the first suicide bombs. Pintak was also the founding dean of the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University. Now he's taking an in-depth look at the issues that divide our world on American fault lines. Broadcasting from the Pacific Northwest, Pintac will bring a perspective that breaks through the New York-Washington news narrative and the fact-free zone of the alt-right media, seeking solutions, not shouting matches, and giving you a whole new take on the news. That gasp of horror you heard after the votes were counted last November came from your neighborhood mosque. No segment of the American public had more at stake in the election than American Muslims. Well, okay, maybe Mexican immigrants and women and, well, anyway. But after a long and tumultuous presidential campaign, in the minds of most Americans, the words Islam and terror are pretty much joined at the hip. Last night you told CNN, quote, Islam hates us. Did you mean all 1.6 billion Muslims? I mean a lot of them. I mean a lot of them. Do you want to clarify the comment at all? Well, you know, I've been watching the debate today, and they're talking about radical Islamic terrorism or radical Islam, but I will tell you there's something going on that maybe you don't know about and maybe a lot of other people don't know about, but there's tremendous hatred, and I will stick with exactly what I said to Anderson Cooper. In Saudi Arabia last weekend, Trump repackaged his message. This is not a battle between different faiths, different sects, or different civilizations. This is a battle between barbaric criminals who seek to obliterate human life and decent people, all in the name of religion. People that want to protect life and want to protect their religion. This is a battle between good and evil. There's no real policy change here. Trump's targets remain ISIS and Iran. But the speech marks a sea change in his previous rhetoric on Saudi Arabia and Islam in general. 
Not coincidentally, the speech also included the announcement of hundreds of billions of dollars of Saudi investments in the U.S. And Trump abandoned the U.S. commitment to human rights. We are not here to lecture. We are not here to tell other people how to live. Throughout the campaign, Trump repeated the theme that all Muslims were responsible for driving the extremists out of their midst. In the Saudi speech, he effectively repeated that. Drive them out of your places of worship. Drive them out of your communities. Drive them out of your holy land. And drive them out of this earth. There was no hint in the speech that his commitment to crushing what Trump calls the foot soldiers of evil will mean a change in tactics when it comes to American Muslims. If anything, a stepped-up counterterrorism war could potentially have even more profound implications for Muslims in the U.S. In this show, we're going to look at the atmosphere among American Muslims six months after Trump's election. We'll talk to a leading American imam, the head of a research organization that studies the American Muslim community, the former head of counterterrorism for the LAPD, and a Muslim activist. But first, we sent reporter Shaheen Pasha out to ask some Muslim students at the University of Massachusetts how they're feeling. She caught up with them after Friday prayers. I do feel traumatized by the whole effect, the fact that, um, you know, that potentially I am like a moving target sometimes because people can definitely see, oh, you're Muslim. Generally, I wasn't scared. And it wasn't until yesterday till I, like, I went, I had an experience yesterday for the first time, which was, which showed me, oh, no, this actually happens. And it was, um, I was on the bus and with my friend she's from India and we were sitting and this guy comes past and he starts going like oh uh, you, sh- you guys should go back to your country or go back to Israel or wherever you're from that was like a smack on my face because I didn't know that this would actually ever happen to me I feel like we didn't see the divide in the United States we didn't take it as seriously and him winning kind of showed how divided the country was and how it's very possible for someone like that to win after all uh, I guess it told me that the rest of America just um, has a lot of anger or a lot of uh, resentment towards not not like particular groups, but just, I guess, anger in general. We heard from UMass students Morjani, Natasha, Ahmed, and Pahia. So how shell-shocked is the Muslim community? To get a sense of that, joining us on Skype are Yasser Qadi, a hugely popular imam who's the dean of the Texas-based Al-Maghrib Institute and has about a million followers on social media. And Mayera Nagaz, the president of the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, a research group that focuses largely on American Muslims. Imam Qadi, you and I spoke literally in the early hours of the morning after the election, and you were pretty devastated at the time. Are you feeling any better now? Um, a little bit better, but I don't think that the Muslim community has fully recovered. Uh, I think we're still kind of sort of in shock because it's just so unpredictable. We just don't know what our president is going to do next. And um, one of the things that does give us some hope for optimism is the uh, community support that we saw across the country 
especially when, for example, he enacted the Muslim ban. Uh, we saw, you know, mass protests at over 100 airports. You know, lawyers came and volunteered their services. So there's definitely, you know, a, a glimmer of hope. Dare I say more than a glimmer of hope. We definitely have uh, a popular support movement coming up. However, I still say the president himself and the staff, uh, White House staff, is extremely unpredictable. And that's why we're still very much uh, on nerves. Bannon has just been demoted. But nonetheless, those types of people, their comments were, were well known. I mean, uh, Bannon literally thought there's going to be an Armageddon between the world of Islam and between you know Christendom or the Western world. So if you have somebody like that who's essentially advising the guy with the nuclear codes, you know, we are all in trouble. It's not just the Muslim community anymore. You, on that morning after the election, I mean, you were literally saying that you didn't want your wife, who is covered, to go out. You were worried that your son was going to get bullied at school. Is is that kind of fear still around, or is that at all? So let me just tell you, I was in Milwaukee two days ago, and I gave the sermon at the largest mosque in, uh, in Milwaukee, 2,000 people. And at that very mosque, I gave the sermon on Friday, at that very mosque, Thursday morning, uh, a lady uh, who was walking back home after prayers was literally um, accosted uh, by a car. A man came out, uh, punched her, half half beat her to death. She thought she would die, uh, strapped her hijab off, uh, and then just you know yelled slurs at her. And then by the time people saw it, he went into his car and, and drove off. Uh, the day before that, in Milwaukee, another lady in hijab uh, was harassed at her home. Somebody actually threw a brick into the window and uh, continued to stalk her. When 911 came, because uh, she called 911, the man actually said, and this is, you can find this, you know, on, in news reports, the man actually said, and I quote, I thought this is what Trump wanted us to do, unquote. You know, so I'm not, I'm not paranoid worried, but we have seen uh, a rise of Islamophobic attacks across the country. We have heard horror stories uh, across the, you know, states that we never thought we'd hear this from. So I'm not paranoid, but I'm definitely cautious. I'm Lawrence Pintak. My guests are Imam Yasser Qadi and Mayira Nagaz of the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. We need to take a break. This is American Fault Lines. This is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak. We're talking about Muslim Americans in the age of Donald Trump. My guests are Imam Yasser Qadi and Mayra Nagaz of the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. Mayra, you have your finger on the pulse of the, the American Muslim community. Your organization does a lot of research. I mean, are you finding this, this kind of sense of, of concern bearing out across the country? Absolutely. What Imam Qadi uh, describes anecdotally is very much backed up in the research that we've done with the Muslim community. We recently conducted a survey uh, that was fielded back in January, just around the time of inauguration. And a lot of the issues that Imam Qadi just brought up are borne out by that data. So, for example, 43% of Muslim families described having to deal with the bullying of at least one of their children, uh, K through 12. Um, and so, a, you know, nearly half of Muslim families are having to deal with the bullying of their children. And perhaps what's more concerning, or, or equally as concerning, is that in a quarter of those incidents, uh, a teacher or school official was involved in the bullying itself. So, these concerns are very real. And when you look at 
how Muslims are faring in this post-election um, atmosphere. Indeed, uh, Muslims fear for their safety. We asked uh, respondents whether they had felt fear for their safety or the safety of their families. And nearly 40% of Muslims say that they are fearful. Um, and women, uh, Muslim women are even more fearful with, with half of Muslim women reporting that they are afraid for their personal safety or the safety of their families. This is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak. My guests are Imam Yasser Qadi and Mayra Nagaz of the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. So, Mayra, what's the psychological damage? Indeed, the psychological damage is concerning. Um, 13% of Muslims who responded uh, to our survey say that they've suffered emotionally with stress or anxiety. And again, Muslim women are more likely to report uh, higher levels of stress and anxiety. Um, but Muslim uh, men and women both are resilient and they're responding with with resilience. But it is concerning that Muslims um, of both genders have expressed the potential need for seeking out mental health services as a result of the outcome of the election. Imam Qadi, the reality is that more than 200 Americans have tried to join ISIS. And we have had examples of Muslim Americans or Muslims living in the U.S who have carried out acts of terrorism against U.S. citizens. Has that changed this dynamic? So that's a very complex question. Firstly, uh, 200 out of how many? Uh, and remember, the statistics are very important here because we are still far more likely uh, to die by a lone, white, disgruntled male shooter than we are by a, a Muslim radical fanatic. In fact, statistics show that uh, furniture causes more deaths, furniture accidents causes more deaths in America than uh, radical jihadist terrorists. So let's keep things in perspective. Muslims, especially American Muslims, are the most affected when such acts take place. It's very, very simplistic to blame the religion or to blame the peoples. Anybody who actually does the research and reads what's going on understands that there are complex factors that if we really want to solve the war on terror, we're going to have to take a step back and figure out what exactly is going on. Mayera, are we seeing as a result of all of this, are American Muslims moving back into the ghetto, I mean, psychologically back into their own communities, or is there much outreach political engagement? I think what we've learned from our research is that Muslims are actually responding to this sort of disproportionate, uh, you know, disproportionately being affected by this outcome by taking action. Uh, we've seen Muslims responding to this prejudice with both resilience and solidarity. A couple of things that we've seen are that one, nearly one in four Muslims increased their donations to organizations uh, that are associated with their faith group as a result of the election, so really fortifying um, the, the, the American Muslim community. We've also seen um, 18 percent of Muslims, so one out of five, either joined, donated, or contributed to a civic organization for the first time. So they are getting more involved and more engaged. And we've also seen enormous solidarity. So for example, when it comes to the Black Lives Matter movement, the Muslim community is the most likely faith group to support that movement by an overwhelming amount. And they're also the least likely, the, the faith group that's least likely to oppose it. Um, An Asian, Black, young, Muslims and, and female Muslims are the most supportive of that. 
Imam Khadi, we're, uh, we're just about out of time, but real quickly, we're now more than 100 days into the Trump presidency, but we've got hundreds of days left of the Trump presidency. Where, what are American Muslims thinking now? What, what are they looking toward? What happens next? Uh, we have hundreds of days left if our president is not impeached, which uh, many people are saying is going to happen. So I just want to have that caveat there. Well, it's um, wishful thinking, but go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, American Muslims, I think, are finally realizing by and large, and that's a very positive sign, that we're going to have to uh, dig our heels in and claim this country uh, for what it is, and that is a country for everyone. Uh, I think I've said this to you before in our previous interview that pre-9-11, American Muslims were semi-isolationists, just minding their own stuff. Uh, I think now we realize, look, we're, we're in this for the long haul. Uh, this is our country just as much as is everybody else's country. And we're going to have to legitimately fight for our rights like a lot of other minorities did. And what we're seeing, um, as Myra said, we're actually seeing different communities come together with the American Muslim community and the American Muslim community reaching out to other communities. So we're all minorities. But when all of us minorities come together, we are actually a majority. And I think that's why this majority feels so threatened because they feel that their their way of life or their you know civilization is is, is changing, um, and because of that, we're seeing this rise of these far right and anti-establishment, anti you know everything, uh, racism and tendency and Islamophobia. So American Muslims are reaching out. We're forming alliances with a lot of other faith communities, a lot of other ethnic groups, a lot of other social movements, and a lot of positive is coming out of this negative. So the irony is. Trump wants to make America great again. And I think that us minorities are doing exactly that, but in ways he could never have, have anticipated. That's all the time we have for this segment. Thanks to my guests, Imam Yasser Qadi and Mayira Nagaz of the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. I'm Lawrence Pintak. We'll be back with the former head of counterterrorism for the LAPD after a break. This is American Fault Lines. Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. We're talking about American Muslims and Donald Trump. With the exception of the carnage of 9-11, terrorism by Muslim extremists has always been something that happened over there, outside the borders of the U.S. Online radicalization by the so-called Islamic State has changed all that. San Bernardino, Orlando, the Boston Marathon— the grim reality is that there now have been acts of terrorism carried out by American Muslims on U.S. soil. It may be a tiny handful, but it does change the conversation. To explore the implications, I spoke with Deputy Chief Michael Downing, the head of counterterrorism at the LAPD. He retired shortly after our conversation. Chief Downing, thanks so much for being with me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Tell me, how much has this changed? The fact that we've had these isolated incidents on U.S. soil, what, how has it changed your job? Well, I think a couple different ways. One, the uh, with the emergence of the caliphate and the Islamic State and their mastery of the propaganda machine, we've seen more of an attraction, more foreign fighters, more HVEs, homegrown violent extremists, 
than we have before. And on one hand, that's a concern, but on the other hand, it also uh, kind of takes a whole community and um, it, it creates a lot of fear in that community. And so we do a lot to build up the communities, the Muslim communities in the area, teach problem-solving skills, encourage civic engagement, try to make them feel like a stakeholder rather than a victim. So where's the line? Obviously, there's been a lot of talk about um, undercover operatives, sting operations, etc. Where's the line between working that side of, of the business and working this other outreach side? Yeah, I think that it's very, it's a very important distinction. One is that, yeah, there's no doubt we have to hunt and pursue those that are trying to do uh, horrible things to innocent people. But on the other side of the equation, those people that are on the fence that haven't yet mobilized to violence that are being recruited, that are being recruited into this dysfunctional ideology, there's an opportunity, as we did with the gangs, uh, to build intervention models where we talk about character development and job placement and perhaps mental illness issues where we get the, the mental health experts involved, social services involved. And if we can get a hold of people before they mobilize to violence, I think that is a, a, be, a better outcome. And that's something we're, we're looking at uh, right now. And, and do you feel, I was talking to one Muslim leader and, and she said that, well, in our mosque, you know, we don't have these programs because we're considered a very liberal mosque and there's nobody here. If, if, if they're leaning that way, they're going to go somewhere else. I mean, do you feel that you're getting to the, the people who are at risk as opposed to the kind of mainstream? Well, we are because we have open cases on them, on the ones that we're dealing with. They haven't yet mobilized to violence, so we're kind of staying in the criminal space. Also, I think it's important that families uh, know that there's an alternative to prosecution. Uh, some of the criticism that we've gotten in the past has been this age of provocateur, where, you know, we'll take per, perhaps somebody to places they never dreamed of going. And I think that there's a balance there. In some cases, yeah, we need undercovers to uh, develop prosecutable cases. But on the other hand, if they haven't gone that far yet, there's an opportunity to intervene. And that will give families confidence to cooperate with, uh, with local law enforcement, FBI, et cetera. Uh, because there's an alternative to prosecution. I think that's an important point to make. Somebody in, in Homeland Security once said to me that there isn't enough of that going on because, in, in his view, the downside was too great, that that there's, you know, it's good for your career if you catch a terrorist, obviously, um, but if you intervene early with somebody who may be going down that road and lead him in a different direction, but later on he carries out mm -hmm. terrorism, then you're screwed. Yeah, but remember when, uh, you know, like even Mateen in Florida, right, they had that case, they closed it because there wasn't, there's guidelines that allow you to keep a case open so long that he didn't. This is the Orlando, the Orlando attacker. Yeah, correct. He closed it. So if we're involved in a intervention with uh, clinicians and social services, they don't have those type of guys. They can keep it open as long as they want. They usually keep it open for years. And I think that's important because... If that in individual turns and starts going the other way, then we can refer it back up to, to the investigators. So we just have to have some other alternative um, other than straight prosecution. And uh, is it risky? Um, I suppose there's a little bit of a risk to it, but uh, a lot less risk than not having anything and not having communities and families feel like they can trust us and cooperate with uh, somebody that they feel is a danger to the community. How much suspicion do you run into when you go out there? 
uh, from the communities, you know, I mean, I think a lot of this, a uh, lot we've seen in the, uh, the political debates has created a lot of fear uh, on the part of Muslim communities where, you know, they've actually said to me, uh, Chief, are the internment camps coming back? So you know if they bring that kind of language up, um, it's uh, that they're, they're very afraid. And so we try to, you know, we, we say, hey, this is your home. Uh, communities are our strength. We want you to participate. We want you to feel like a stakeholder. We want you to learn how to access government. We want you to learn how to solve problems in your community so you can build community. And we want you to get involved in civic engagement projects. Really so- what we're saying is we're, we're, we're helping you to identify what it is to be an American Muslim, an American Jew, an American Christian. So much of this recruitment has been digital. How do you guys on a local level fight that? Well, it's, it's, it's hard, especially when you're talking about things going dark with the encryption and whatnot. And I think that, that you know, two ways. One, you need, uh, you need human sources uh, to feel responsible enough to cooperate with uh, uh, law enforcement that something's going awry. And you need communities that when they see something that is suspicious to know how to report it. In fact, we've gone to the point where we have an app, I Watch LA. Uh, you can download it on your phone and it, it instructs you what to do and instructs you how to report things. And we're saying, we're not saying spy on people. We're not saying, you know, watch your neighbor all the time. We're saying, look, you know what's abnormal and what's not. And when you see something that's suspicious that you don't understand that could be related to a crime, get us involved. Let me play you a piece of tape of Donald Trump at an Ocala rally uh, just in mid-October. We had no ISIS. And now, seven and a half years later, they're in, they think, 32 countries. And she's going to get rid of them? I can tell you this. They are hoping and they are praying. They are hoping and praying that Hillary Clinton becomes president of the United States. Because they'll take over not only that part of the world, they'll take over this country, they'll take over this part of the world. Believe me. So should we be manning the barricades? No, it's nonsense. That's, uh, that's absolute, absolute nonsense. Look, the Muslim community in the, in the United States is between, you know, four, maybe four million, four and a half million, if that. The majority, 99% of patriotic Americans like you and I, uh, they're a strength, not a weakness. We should consider them a strength, not a weakness. They're Americans, and uh, they protect the values of our country as as much as we do. That's been my experience on the ground, working with those communities every day. What keeps you awake at night? Well, what keeps me awake at night is, is what I don't know, and the fact that the threat has evolved where the homegrown violent extremists is probably uh, the greatest potential right now. We ex- I expect uh, the U.S. will be attacked by the HVE type of, uh, of terrorists. Homegrown violent extremist. Homegrown violent extremist who's inspired by this ISIS ideology. And, um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the communication is encrypted. So we need communities to partner with us. We need Muslim communities to partner with us, Jewish communities, Christian communities. And this isn't a, this isn't a Muslim problem. It's not a Jewish problem. And it's not a Christian problem. It's a, it's a real human problem that we need a whole of government, whole of community to embrace and partner with us. And because of the degradation in Syria and Iraq, most recently, this problem is going to get worse before it gets better. Now, I don't want to be an alarmist. I I still think it's a a low-volume but very high-consequence threat. 
and we need to prepare for it. Is there enough interagency cooperation around this? There can always be more cooperation. I think there can be more cooperation. Our, our partnerships are good with the federal government, with the, the FBI, who's the quarterback in this game, but they've got a lot of deep players. Um, but a lot of, I think a lot more work needs to be done with communities and with an attitude toward they are a resource, they are our best asset, and, um, and they're our strength, and we need to tap into that strength. Where does, I mean, you're head of counterterrorism for LAPD. I mean, where does homegrown violent extremists sit in your, on your radar screen in terms of your priorities? It's bleeping. I mean, we have homegrown violent extremists in our region. Uh, I think we have more than we've had in the past. The nation's had more than they've had in the past. And we need to kind of turn the tide on that. So it is, uh, in terms of my radar screen, it's, it's close and it's beeping. I want to thank Deputy Chief Michael Downing, former head of counterterrorism at the LAPD, for joining us. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. We're talking about Muslim Americans in the age of Trump. With me in this segment is Daisy Khan, the executive director of the Women's Islamic Initiative, or WISE. Daisy, how much is the American Muslim community to blame for today's Islamophobia? Well, I would say that the only people we would blame for that are the terrorists who have marred the name of Islam. And unfortunately, the the voices of the uh, law-abiding American Muslims get drowned out by the voices of the terrorists, and Islam continually gets linked to terrorism. And I think that American Muslims have come to the realization that we are solely responsible for, you know, straightening out the record on who Muslims are and what Islam is. And if we don't do it, then the terrorists define us. We saw Islamophobia after 9-11, obviously. Do you think American Muslims at that point did enough to allay fears and explain who they were? Unfortunately, uh, although American Muslims really stepped into the fray and we were condemning these terrorist attacks, uh, the media was not covering us, not in the way that they would cover us today, uh, which is a little bit more balanced than it was after 9-11. So every time Muslims spoke or there were, you know, uh, conferences or press statements or, uh, you know, if we would go out and, and stand shoulder to shoulder with interfaith communities or if there was a major fatwa issued by some, some clerics who uh, condemned the acts of, of 9-11, none of it was covered. So Americans thought that Muslims were silent and that we were complicit because of our silence. And this is the biggest struggle that we've had to wage. Um, But what has really uh, prevented Islamophobia from spreading, you know, over that decade was all the relationships, the deep relationships that we built with interfaith communities uh, that, you know, where we made relationships and stood shoulder to shoulder with our um, you know, friends and allies in interfaith communities who really understood the challenge that we were confronted with. 
You, um, after 9-11, were beaten up pretty badly. You were the face of the so-called uh, uh, Ground Zero Mosque, the, the community center. Does that not make you gun-shy about being out in the media now? Well, I think that, you know, we really it's really time for us to distinguish the true teachings of Islam from the false extremist dogma that we see uh, being played out everywhere and I feel it's my obligation to tell my story if I don't and the story of who I am and what my faith is if I don't my script is going to be written for me by others and I just can't afford to do that so where do Muslim Americans go from here you're you're looking at four more years or almost four years of Trump Um, are people afraid or is this energizing people it's been actually energizing and you know we are a community under duress but just like any other community that feels that they are being pushed into the corner the american muslim community uh you know has created a lot of great infrastructure the civil society is very vibrant people are deeply energized to change this to confront this misconception that they have about american muslims and in that energizing i think we will see Um, I mean, I personally have a lot of hope in this energizing because I see that more and more people are getting engaged in the community that otherwise would not have. Um, But I also think in addition to that, what is really heartening to see is how um, people across different movements are joining uh, Muslims together and how Muslims are joining other people of other movements. Uh, so we are seeing Daisy, more- we, we have less than a minute left. Let me ask you one quick question, and that is, how much now are Muslim Americans reaching out to try to address radicalization or prevent radicalization within their own communities? We have about 30 seconds. So we are launching a Wise Up report, which was published by 60 Muslim scholars, activists. It's a woman-led organization. And we will be going to the heartland to speak to Americans using this report that we have and the website. It's called wiseupreport.org. And we want to engage people, but it requires a whole of America response. We all have to come together to lick this problem once and for all. Daisy Khan, Executive Director of the Women's Islamic Initiative. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. That wraps up this show. Thanks to my producer, Dave Bourne. Our theme music is by Dutch percussionist Ruben van Rompuy. I'm Lawrence Pintak. Follow me on Twitter at L-P-I-N-T-A-K. Visit AmericanFaultLines.com and let us know what you think of the show. Download the podcast of this and previous shows on SoundCloud, or follow us and subscribe on Google Play and iTunes. And join us again next week when we explore more American Fault Lines. Mm-hmm.